<clears throat> well, you can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 24 as we return to our studies in the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> Remember that from chapter 17 onward, it's what's been called the holiness code. So up to chapter 16, you basically have emphases on corporate worship. You have legislation with reference to sacrifice, what the worshiper is to bring to the tabernacle, to the priest. Then you have legislation concerning the priesthood. And then you see that put into practice in chapters 9 and 10. Uh, you see it positively in chapter 9. The fire of God comes down out of heaven and approvingly accepts the sacrifice that they render. And then in chapter 10, in verses 1 to 3, you have Nadab and Abihu offer up profane fire before the Lord, and God sends fire down, but this time not to consume the sacrifice, but the sacrificers. And then from thence on, we see this emphasis on cleanliness and holiness, and that is to mark the people of God so that they can enter into the house of God. And then that comes to sort of a pinnacle in Leviticus chapter 16, which deals with the Day of Atonement. So it was that one day in the year where the children of Israel would gather together, the high priest would sacrifice one of the goats, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies a few times and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And then he would come out and take that other goat, the scapegoat, lay his hands upon that goat, confess the sins of Israel, and then drive it out into the wilderness. And so we see something at least analogous to the new covenant doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So Leviticus 16, you've got this emphasis on being made right with God through atonement. And then, of course, the emphasis from chapter 17 and following is on sanctification or living in light of that blessed reality. Again, it's not strictly parallel. There are some significant differences between the old and the new covenant, but there is that, that analogy. We are justified freely by God's grace, and then we enter into the life of sanctification. So we've considered several things with reference to the individual here in Leviticus 6, uh, 17 and following. And tonight we're going to read chapter 24 and then look at this in some detail. So beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by a perpetual statute. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. 
His mother's name was Shalemith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. For I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed, and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. Not a lot of narrative section in the book of Leviticus. I've already mentioned chapter 10. And the sacrifice of Nadab and Abihu, well, certainly the penalty for blasphemy here isn't an abstract sort of a law. It is rather a concrete application relative to a particular situation in Israel. But as we look at the chapter as a whole, you have, first of all, rules for the tabernacle in verses 1 to 9. And then secondly, the punishment of blasphemy in verses 10 to 23. So let's look first at the rules for the tabernacle. And there's two things specified here, the lampstand in verses 1 to 4, and then the bread of presence, or as the New King James has it, the showbread in verses 5 to 9. So look first with me at verses 1 to 4 at the lampstand. Notice in verse 1, you have a reminder that this is by way of divine authority. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Now I've pointed that out many times as we have moved our way through the book of Leviticus, because I think at times we are inclined to think that it's the law of Moses. It's not wrong to refer to it as the law of Moses, provided we do not credit Moses as having been the origin of it. He is a mediator. He is giving it on behalf of Yahweh of Israel. So this is divine commandment. So all that follows isn't just suggestive. It isn't just perhaps a better way to do society, but this comes from the mouth of God Most High. Now, some have wondered why we have this emphasis on the lamps and tabernacle and then blasphemy in chapter 24. One has suggested, and I think with some degree of merit, that after chapter 23, which dealt with the feasts of the Lord, the various times on Israel's calendar where they would meet together to, to serve and to glorify God, different from the Sabbath day. This is not the one in seven pattern that Israel was obliged to or commanded, by, uh, uh, commanded to observe by God, but this is the, the, the various feasts that made up Israel's calendar. So one suggests that the emphasis on the tabernacle 
tabernacle lamps and the bread of the tabernacle was to re, uh, demonstrate that the feasts in chapter 23 do not mitigate the daily necessity of the worship of God at the tabernacle. So just because we have these sorts of things that punctuate the calendar, that doesn't mean that we no longer have any obligation with reference to daily worship, or at least with reference to the priesthood, and their necessity to engage in these activities within the tabernacle. Now with reference to the lampstand, notice the specific command in verse 2, command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamp, uh, lamps burn continually. So basically you have this stipulated in the book of Exodus at chapter 27 verses 20 to 21. You have the design in Exodus chapter 25 verses 31 to 39. The construction of the lampstand in Exodus chapter 37 verses 17 to 24. And then the setting up of the lampstand when they uh, build the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 at verses 25 and 26. So this is not new legislation. This isn't no uh, a, a brand new sort of a concept relative to the tabernacle, but it is, as I said, a, a, a reminder for the daily rhythm of worship with reference to the house of the living God. And then notice where that the placement of the lampstand is. In verse 3, outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generation. So this, according to the apostle in Hebrews chapter 9, is in the holy place. You have two compartments in the tabernacle. Well, you have three if you consider the outer court, but within that actual tent of meeting, you have a holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. Everybody but the high priest was prohibited from going into the holy of holies. And the high priest didn't just wander in there any old time of the week. He went in there once or a couple of times on the one day, the day of atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16. So in Hebrews 9, verse 2, it says, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. So there was that curtain or that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And as I said, the holy of holies was only entered once a year by the high priest for the purpose of the day of atonement. Going back to Leviticus chapter 24, again, just notice that this is not only divine origin in terms of the command, but it's divine regulation. God doesn't say just find somebody hanging out in the Walmart parking lot and put him in charge of this. No, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord, uh, before the Lord continually. And then in verse 4, he shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. When you get to the temple or the tabernacle and then the temple, you notice that it's not haphazard. It's not up for grabs. There's no vote. There's no sort of suggestion from the crowd. Hey, I think this guy ought to Served. No, it was very strictly regulated by God that it would be the Levites or the tribe of Levi. And within that tribe of Levi, you had the, the specific sons of Aaron that functioned as the high priest, but then the Levites themselves took care of all those other corollaries with reference to uh, the, 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 the uh, daily use and the Sabbath use and the feastly use of, of the tabernacle and then temple. And then one more time, let us notice that clause in verse 3. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. 
I think at times Christians read that and they think, well, should we have a, tabern uh, a lampstand? Should we have a tabernacle? Because it says that it's supposed to be a statute forever in your generations. That is covenant, or, or governed by the covenant. As long as the old covenant is in play, then this is binding on the people of God. The old covenant is no longer. It has been, uh, it is obsolete, not because it was bad, but because Christ came, fulfilled all the obligations placed upon Israel via the old covenant, functioning as the Israel of God. He fulfills all righteousness. So he brings in and inaugurates the new covenant, which is a better covenant founded on better promises that affords a better better hope. So it's not the case that we need to have lampstands, tabernacles, uh, bread, uh, uh, showbread, and temples. John Gill makes the observation concerning that statement. It shall be a statute forever in your generations, he says, until the Messiah should come. <clears throat> the true light, which would put out all such typical ones, and by his gospel spread light in all his churches throughout the world. Of course, you can see that connection. There is a typo, uh, uh, typological significance in the furniture in the tabernacle. You've got this prefigurement concerning Christ and his worship and, and the things that go on in the new covenant. And then that brings us to the bread of presence. Notice the placement in verses 5 to 7. So basically, you have this uh, table that was built, again, in accordance with Exodus 25, verses 23 to 30, and then Exodus 37, verses 10 to 16. That's the table that held the bread of the presence, or the showbread. And then notice the placement in verse 6. It says, you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold, uh, pure gold table before the Lord. I think the 12 there represents, signifies, makes connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. The same sort of thing is with, uh, seen with reference to the stones that the priest wore on his ephod. In Exodus chapter 28, 9 to 12, you had the 12 tribes of Israel represented. So the idea being is that this tabernacle is the house of God, the meeting place with God. And so Israel, the covenant people of God, the entirety of them, the 12 tribes, had truck with him, had interaction and communion and fellowship with him. And then notice the accompaniment with this bread. Verse 7, you shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Again, Gill makes this observation concerning Exodus 25, verse 30, specifically the statement concerning the showbread. He says, this was a memorial of the goodness of God in daily providing bread for the people of Israel. One commentator suggests it was akin to the, the practice, you perhaps have seen it in a Chinese restaurant before, when they have a statue of Buddha and they put, you know, bananas or oranges or whatever there. It's to feed the god, feed the gods. One commentator suggested that that was the practice. I think Gill's on the better track. So this was a memorial of the goodness of God in daily providing bread for the people of Israel and was presented to him as a thankful acknowledgement of it and being the same they ate at their own tables. And this being eaten by the priests was expressive of the communion between God and them, they being guests of his and feeding on the same provision. So it speaks to communion, it speaks to fellowship, it speaks to remembering how God provides for the children of Israel with reference to their daily bread. Interestingly, Gill goes on to say, 
that it was typical of the church and the people of God. And then he says, the showbread of fine flour may fitly signify Christ. The finest of the wheat, the corn of heaven, the bread that comes from thence, its quantity, 12 cakes, the sufficiency of food within, bread enough and to spare for the whole Israel of God, its continuance, the permanency of Christ as the food believers have always to feed upon. Again, that's a great encouragement when we consider that emphasis in John's gospel, John chapter 6. The Lord Jesus likens himself as the bread of life, or identifies himself as the bread of life. And you notice it is placed on that table once a week on the Sabbath day, according to verse 8. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. Again, the everlasting covenant there, I would identify with the old covenant. It's everlasting insofar as it is binding upon the people of God. It gave way to the new covenant, which is the everlasting covenant in this dispensation, if I can use that word. And then it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. So this would be their portion or their provision. No doubt it would be stale, so this wasn't as good as the hot burning meat that they got to eat right off the altar, but nevertheless, this was part of their uh, 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 provision in terms of their priestly office. And then it goes on to say, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So reminders concerning the rules for the tabernacle in verses one to nine. And that brings us to the penalty for blasphemy. And again, this isn't abstract. This isn't you know, pulled out of the hat of God's law, but there is a specific incident that necessitates this revelation concerning the disposition of this particular fellow. So basically you have the offense in verses 10 to 12, then you have the judgment of God in verses 13 to 22, and then you have the execution by the people in verse 23. But note first the offense. The first uh, uh, verse 10 says, now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So it's the same sort of situation that you see in Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, a passage that I think speaks specifically relative to the prohibition of abortion. Exodus 21, 22, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if any harm follows to either the woman or her baby or babies, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Right. So the same sort of a thing going on. I mean, it's not just 21st century North America where fights break out in subway stations or in Walmart. I've been seeing people are going nuts over Stanley Cups. Not the Stanley Cup vis-a-vis -vis hockey, but cops. Like, what? anybody seen that? What is the deal with that? Are these like the golden chalice that everybody must have? Reminds me of that bit in 1984 where all the ladies were lining up for saucepans. It's really degenerated to such a, such a place where we're just right there alongside of 1984. At any rate, we have the same sort of people 
functioning in the old covenant, the way they function in the new covenant, in society, and, and unfortunately sometimes in the church. So these two guys get into a fight. And now the particular offense comes in verses 11 and 12. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. If you notice, if you're using the New King James, I didn't have time to check the other English versions. Actually, I didn't even think to. But if you notice, it says the name of the Lord. That's supplied there. And it's supplied with good warrant and good merit because notice in verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. We're certainly dealing with the Lord in this particular situation. But it's not uncommon for scripture to just refer to God at times by the name. And that's what's happening here in verse 11. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed, and so they brought him to Moses. Now, what's the significance of the names of God? There are various names of God given to him throughout Scripture. Van Maastricht makes the observation that the nature of God is made known to us by his names. He says, first, they reveal his essence. Secondly, they distinguish him from false gods and all creatures whatsoever. And then third, they make known his properties and qualities. So the names of God aren't simply there as identifiers, but they do those things. They reveal uh, his essence, they distinguish him, and they make known his properties and qualities. <clears throat> Herman Bovink says, all we can learn about God from his revelation is designated his name in Scripture. He goes on to say, the name of God in Scripture does not describe God as he exists within himself. So distinction there. God in himself is incomprehensible to us. He reveals himself propositionally in Revelation so that we can learn. We learn by way of what's called analogical predication. But God's incomprehensibility means that we cannot know God the way that God knows God. And so that's what he emphasizes there. All we can learn about God from his revelation, I'm sorry, the name of God in Scripture does not describe God as he exists within himself, but God in his revelation and multiple relations to his creatures. This name, however, is not arbitrary. God reveals himself in the way he does because he is who he is. Summed up in his name, therefore, is his honor, his fame, his excellencies, his entire revelation, his very being. And I think he's right on with reference to that identification of the name. So the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed, and then notice, they detain the offender. So at the end of verse 11, it says, so they brought him to Moses. And then it gives us a bit of his family. I'm sure his mother was very proud of him when she got this knowledge. And then it says, then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. So they brought him to Moses, they put him in custody, and then they want to know the mind of God. Now, probably they had an idea about the mind of God with reference to this particular situation. Because previously in God's word, in God's law, we see the death penalty mandated for cursing parents in Exodus 21, verse 17. And then just turn back to Leviticus chapter 20, specifically at verse 9. Exodus chapter, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 20 at verse 9. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. 
So when we go back to verse 13 and chapter, or verse 12 and verse 20, uh, chapter 24, it says, then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Again, they probably had a good idea of where this might be going, but the third commandment, which is the backdrop for this particular case law application, the third commandment says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So quite likely, they could have thought that God would just directly kill him. God would just vaporize him or decimate him right on the spot. Or God would use the agency of the civil government, in this case, Moses and the judges that were functioning, or the elders that were functioning at that particular time. So the inquiry makes sense. There's this particular situation, and as I said, this is case law. Case law is the application in the concrete of something that is an abstract principle. So the third commandment prohibits the taking of the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is an application of that law in civil society relative to this particular Israelite who cursed the name of God Almighty. So then that brings us to the judgment of God. First, notice the revelation of God in verses 13 and 14. Once again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Moses didn't come up with this. Moses didn't take, a, you know, take lots and have everybody you know, pick one and, and, and draw and see what we should do with this particular fellow because he's blasphemed and cursed the name of the Lord God Most High. This is divine in its origin. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, so I think as New Covenant Christians, perhaps one of the questions tonight, hopefully not, but one of the questions will be, should we execute uh, blasphemers in this New Covenant setting? He's already poised and ready. He's got it in his holster to ask the question. Um, in the New Covenant, the church does not have the sword to bear. We live in a society that is not directly governed by biblical law. If a society was directly governed by biblical law, and it was well known that if you blaspheme, you're going to be stoned to death, well then, I would guess that that would be absolutely positively okay. Do I think that's ever going to happen? I really pretty much kind of doubt it. But hey, if, you know, that's how it goes, then that's how it goes. But we need to remember that the, the analogy between Old Covenant Israel and what we call the New Covenant Israel, or the true Israel, or spiritual Israel, it's there and it's real, but it's not a one-to-one -one connection. When, when we get to the, the, the laws of God in the Old Testament, there was... You know, a priestly cast, uh, a class, there was the, those responsible for the cult, there were those responsible for religion, and then there were those responsible with reference to the civil state. In the New Covenant Church, we're not responsible for the civil state. We're not responsible to execute criminal offenders. If we have a blasphemer or someone who curses, we go to him. If he hears us, we've won our brother. If he doesn't, we take two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen to them, we tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then we excommunicate him. We treat him like a heathen and a tax collector. But the church has not been given the sword to wield in the execution of criminal offenders. That's outside of our jurisdiction. So back to the particular text, or, or, or my point was, if we have a problem with this kind of legislation, I would suggest or encourage us to check our hearts. 
Because what may appear to be barbaric to us in a new covenant setting, as we look back in old covenant Israel, it is divine in its origin. God spoke this. And I would suggest, I think I mentioned this on Sunday night, to blaspheme or to curse Yahweh of Israel was tantamount to treason. He was the sovereign. He was the authority. He was the lawmaker. And if you resisted that, or if you rejected that, it was a usurpation of his government. And so therefore, religiously, don't blaspheme the name of the Lord your God, because it's wicked and sinful. But civilly, it is an act of treason against the civil state, and as a result, you will be executed. I mean, treason has become so commonplace in Western governments that we forgot how important it actually is. You're supposed to actually kill tra uh, traitors. They're not uh, friends of any government. They don't help. They don't advance. They don't do good things. There ought to be consequences for those who engage in such activity. So back to the text. It's divine in its origin. Uh, verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, notice in verse 14, take outside the camp him who has cursed. That is the specific responsibility. You don't sully, you don't dirty, you don't render unclean the camp by the shed blood of a particular criminal. We have that wonderful bit in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, which shows our curse bearer being treated in the same sort of a way. In Hebrews 13 at verse 10, it says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with, uh, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So back to Leviticus 24. This was the stipulation. Take him outside of the camp. And then notice the agency for the infliction of the penalty. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. Because the first statement concerning, or the first declaration or command concerning capital punishment, the agency was via man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. So again, they're waiting to hear how God is not going to hold this man guiltless. Is God going to decimate him directly, or is he going to use man? Well, that's the emphasis. And then notice, then let all who heard him lay their hands on him, on his head. So I think this foreshadows what you're going to get in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, where it's two or three witnesses for every capital case. And the fact that the witnesses lay their hands on that particular head indicates that there are witnesses, that this was something that was confirmed. This wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't somebody going to Moses and saying, yeah, this guy blasphemed and cursed God. Well, bring him here and let's stone him. No, the witnesses had to be there. And again, Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21 is interest, uh, interesting, not that Deuteronomy 17 isn't, but in Deuteronomy 19, we have this situation. In fact, turn there, because it's very important to see the safeguards that are in place 
with reference to the application of the death penalty in Old Covenant Israel. Before 19, look at 17. 17, 6, and 7. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. That would increase the gravity. Okay? These aren't, you know, this wasn't New York City. We're not talking about teeming millions of people that you never saw, never knew. Most likely, the persons that committed crimes, you probably saw them from time to time. So if you knew you're going to have to put your hand upon his head and witness against him in a capital case, that underscores the gravity of the situation and I hope discriminates against or discourages false witness. But if it doesn't, there is a specific restriction against false witness in Deuteronomy 19. Notice in verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now notice, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So again, the same old covenant that stipulates execution of criminal offenders puts in safeguards and builds parameters and fences around it so that it cannot be easily abused. So basically, if I allege that, that Shane is guilty of a capital offense and I'm a false witness and we go before the judges and they discern that I'm a false witness, whatever the penalty would have been for, for him for that crime is now turned against me. I'm going to think twice before I go to the judges. If I don't have good evidence, if I can't see a conviction followed through, I'm not going to go. Biblical law really would reduce the litigiousness of man who is oftentimes sue happy and crazed with trying to get people in trouble. And then in verse 20, and those who remain shall hear and fear and hereafter, they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So back to Leviticus 24, the agency, witnesses, and then all the congregation. And notice all the congregation stones the man and stones him to death. Then we have the command of God in verses 15 and 16. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And when it says his God, he's not saying that, you know, if you're a Hittite and you have particular gods, don't curse it. If you're a Jebusite and you have particular gods, don't curse. He's talking about God. He's talking about Yahweh. He's talking to the children of Israel. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. That means he's liable to the punishment involved with that. He is responsible for that particular sin. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When, the blaspheme, uh, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Go back to the book of Exodus to chapter 12 for just a quick moment, because twice strangers are mentioned in Leviticus 24. Where'd all these strangers come from? Well, 
Perhaps once they get, uh, uh, one, once they leave the, the, the bondage of Egypt, there are a multitude that go with them. Notice in Exodus chapter 12, specifically at verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them also and flocks and herds a great deal of livestock. So in other words, the Egyptians didn't just enslave the Israelites. They had other people as well. I doubt it was just, you know, they had an anti-Semitic bent, bent and all they wanted to do was get those nasty Jews. No, they had other people under their, uh, 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 under their bondage as well. And so when this exodus event occurs, this mixed multitude goes up with them also, flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Now, as they close in on the promised land, as they get stationed in the promised land, there's proselytes, there's people that come in amongst them. And so when we come to this prohibition, you can't plead, well, I'm not an Israelite. I'm not a covenant citizen. I, I worship Molech, or I worship Asherah, or I worship Baal. No, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord God of Israel, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And then you've got some reminders by God. Reminders by God in verses 17 to 22. Not new legislation, but reminder consistent with the death penalty legislation given here in verses 13 to 16. So we've got the death penalty now including blasphemy or cursing God. So we are reminded in verse 17, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Now we know, based on our studies earlier in the book of Leviticus, we know that the killing here is murder. It's got malice aforethought, it's premeditated, it's the desire on the part of one person to rid the earth of another person. Again, with malice in his heart. It is not accidental homicide that's in view. So whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Remember the three instances of lawful killing. You've got self-defense, you've got just war, and you've got capital punishment. Those three things are not murder. Those three things are homicide, but they're not murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. And it's good for us to remember that. And then notice, there is a distinction between man and animal. Verse 18, whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animal. There's legislation in Exodus 22, 1 to 15, that deals with people in the Old Covenant community and the various issues that befall them relative to animals. But there's nothing answering specifically to this. There's nothing strictly parallel to this. And the general principle, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. See, that's not what it is with reference to man. If you kill a man, in a sinful criminal way, you must be executed. If you kill an animal, you are not to be executed. There is a distinction built in that we see at the creation of man. Man is the pinnacle of God's creative work. Man is not like the animal. I mean, we are, there's similarities to be sure, but we bear the image of God and the animal does not. That's the, dis the, the, the distinction. And then notice the principle of retributive justice. In Latin, this is the lex talionis. So verse 19, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. I think it's in... 
at least it's been in my head, was there a subset of Levites that went out and broke bones and popped out eyes and you know, had pliers and ripped out teeth? The, the idea here, I, I, that wouldn't be a fun job. I'm sure some beasts out there, would not out here, but out there somewhere would like that. But uh, the, the, the principle is that the punishment must fit the crime. That, that's what it means. I read the section in Exodus 21 when the men fight and they hurt a woman who is pregnant and she gives birth prematurely, then the lax talionis, or the law of retribution, applies. And so if the mother and her premature babies die, then the man who struck her must die. Because this law, Exodus 21, covers the, the mother and her baby. It's plural, so it could be babies. It envisages uh, twins, triplets, whatever the next one is. Quattro? No. What is it? Okay, yeah, that, and then five, and then six, however many she may, may have in there. So anyway, so we got the lex talionis re repeated here. You'll also see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 19, 21. Basically, any system of justice operates on this principle. The punishment must fit the crime. And interestingly, Old Covenant law, or the law regulating the Israelites, is different than other ancient Near Eastern codes. With reference to the ancient Near Eastern world, they were a lot more liberal with harsh punishment for property crimes. The, the Old Covenant law was not. There's only one case of punitive amputation in the, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, and it has nothing to do with a property situation. <clears throat> so, so when it comes, however, to life, human life, there is a strictness about God's law regulating that particular crime. And then the distinction between animal death and human death is repeated in verse 21. And then in verse 22, we see again the comprehensiveness of the law. And then in verse 23, the execution by the people. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. They took outside the camp him who had cursed, stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. <laughs> there was a perpetuity about this as well. There are other instances in scripture where we see the blasphemy law uh, appealed to with reference to the execution of individuals. Naboth and his vineyard in 1 Kings chapter 21, specifically at verses 10 to 13. Remember, woman of the year Jezebel came up with this idea to accuse Naboth of blasphemy so that he could be executed so that Ahab could then co-opt his land and take it from him. He made the deal, he tried to buy it, but uh, Naboth was a righteous and upright man. He didn't want to sell it. So Jezebel cooks up this plan. Scoundrels do come. They allege that Naboth was a, a blasphemer. And of course, he's executed. This was the case of Jesus. When the Sanhedrin goes before Pontius Pilate, they don't accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer. That would not have flown with Pilate. That was not a crime that Pilate would have been concerned about. If Jesus asserted that he was the Messiah or the Son of God, Pilate might have thought he was, you know, not all there, but he wouldn't have said he's a threat to the civil polity in Rome. So when they go before Pontius Pilate, they say something that Pilate would be provoked by. He forbids paying taxes. And he asserts that he's a king in the sense that he's going to subjugate the, the Roman Empire. 
but with reference to the Sanhedrin trial when the high priest uh, uh, puts Jesus under oath and says, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah of God? Jesus affirms that. What does the high priest do? He tears his garment. He says, we have no need of further witnesses. We've heard it for ourselves. This man is guilty of blasphemy. And then the godly man, Stephen, according to Acts chapter 6, he is accused of blasphemy. Remember, they try to dispute with him, and he bests them because he's filled with the Spirit, and he's filled with wisdom. So what do they do? They turn to plan B. Well, let's kill him. It's an unfortunate reality about the enemies of Christ. If you best them in argument, they'll just try to kill you. And so what they alleged is that Stephen himself had been a blasphemer, and ultimately he is executed according to chapter 7 in the book of Acts. <clears throat> so there's chapter 24. We learn not, first of all, to profane God's name. Secondly, we ought to engage in a proper use of God's name. Westminster Larger Catechism, number 112, says the third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing, by an holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Well, may God help us to control our tongues, to control our minds, to keep our own hearts with all diligence, knowing that from it spring the issues of life, and that we may not profane the name of our great God. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the, the glory and the majesty and the excellence and power of God that we see behind passages like these. Your name is holy. Your name is to be hallowed. Your name does represent your nature. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures by the various names that we do find. We thank you for these things that teach us concerning you. We pray that you would help us not to profane that blessed name, help us to have a proper use of it in our hearts and minds and with our words. And God, go with us now. Give us grace in the remainder of this week. Bring us together on the Lord's Day. We, we look forward to seeing our sisters enter the, the waters of baptism and pray that it would be a blessed day for them, for all of us, and for any that come in among us that are unsaved. We pray that that would be the day of salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Any questions or comments? Yes, sir. Well, we saw in a few chapters the two or three witnesses against capital punishment, um, and I guess against all crime, and then we go over to the discipline passage in Matthew 18, and my understanding of it is it's not a passage for like, if you have two people, you have a church, but it's Christ is there uh, in that witness group against, for example, the punishment being doled out to That's the, right. And so it's not a passage of church, but of Christ just confirming the judgment. Right. Specifically in a disciplinary setting. I, I had cause to reflect on this recently. You know, the Belgian Confession, Article 29, speaks of three marks of the church. <clears throat> Preaching the word, the administration of the sacraments, and then the exercise of discipline. And each of those things have a promise, a specific promise in the New Testament of Christ's presence. So preaching, we have Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear him? 
without a preacher. Yeah. Uh, the Apostle Paul charges Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the word. So preaching Christ is there. As well with reference to the sacraments, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. We don't need the, the real presence vis-a-vis -vis Lutheranism or Catholicism, the physical presence of Jesus. That's a violation of the Christology, but he's there present really by the Spirit and then in discipline. So yeah. Matthew 18, we use that principle often and we take it out of the context. And I don't think it's wrong to apply it. If two or three brethren are together and they're praying, yeah, we trust Christ is in our midst. But the specific application in, in, in Matthew 18 is in the exercise of church discipline. This isn't willy-nilly. This isn't arbitrary. It's not capricious. If you're doing what God would have you to do in obedience to the word, you have the, uh, the sanction of, of God behind you. And I think we see that in Matthew 16. You've got that sort of universal church emphasis, but what is mentioned there is the keys of the kingdom and the ability to bind and loose. And then when you get to Matthew 18 in a specific local church context, that authority of binding and loosing carries down into the local church arena. And so when the church functions the way she's supposed to and exercises discipline, we have the promise that Christ is there. So each of those three marks, Christ is present in the midst of them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Anyone else? Good. Have a good night. It's supposed to be cold tomorrow, right? Will you wear a jacket?